0: You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor. This episode we're joined by Deborah Kroll, a journalist who covers a lot of environmental and indigenous issues because she is indigenous. As a journalist, she's always bringing up some kind of information that got buried somewhere else and... There's a story I actually bring up in here about old Hohogam irrigation channels, which some of my own ancestors who just immigrated from England and Sweden to the U.S. West actually started using when they were first settling. And to be clear, I originally heard this story from Deb in the first place. So that was a part of my own story that I hadn't known until talking to Deborah. She's going to keep blowing minds through this whole interview. I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So take it away, Deborah.
1: My name is Deborah Kroll, and um, I'm a I'm a and I like to call myself an indigenous journalist because yes, I'm a journalist, but I'm also an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. Um, my tribe is in the Central California coast, mm-hmm. and I guess you could say we've engaged in sustainable, what they call pre-agriculture for about the last ten thousand years. Right. So. Yes, although I live now in the southwest, so that's, that's about me. Oh, name of my tribe is the Hakolom or Halon Salinan tribe, mm-hmm. and Halon is the Anglicized version of Hakolom,
0: which is Valley of the Big Oak. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. 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 So what kind of journalism do you tend to focus on?
1: I'd like to say my name is Indians, as in my fellow American Indians.
0: Yeah.
1: And Alaska Natives, Canadian First Nations, meso Americans, Pacific Islanders. So I'm kind of a generalist, although I do a lot of environmental journalism, environmental justice, oh. um, climate change. Climate change is a big big focus in Indian country these days yeah. because generally it is the indigenous peoples who are always affected first and most by any kind of climatic changes whether or not it's human caused.
0: Right. Yeah, there's um, one of the largest native communities in the eastern half of the country is in the county to the south of us and you know, it's very low-lying country, and every time there's a hurricane, they get terrible flooding. And uh, they're also trying to build a pipeline, and I don't know how, but there's, like, one county in the state that has a ton of Native people in it, and the pipeline went right through it, and you're just like, <laughs> okay. Um, it hasn't been built yet, but we're, we're hoping to keep it that way.
1: And that's generally the case, and it's not just... Indigenous communities, as people of color in general, mm-hmm. yeah. have far less power to prevent these these types of, of infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. That's why you see a lot of the highest polluting industrialization in communities of color, and of course in, in communities that don't have the the you know the economic wherewithal to go and fight these. These types of things. Right. I mean, like, who who really wants a coal fired power plant
0: in their backyard? Right, yeah. There's a, you know, there's one large city uh, kind of in this area. Well, a cluster of cities, it's the research triangle, and you can kind of watch the pipeline go bloop around it because, you know, they're not going to take that.
1: Well, and then, of course, we have DAPL, which is the pipeline that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and their allies have been trying to fight. And one big reason they were fighting it was that that pipeline was supposed to go by Bismarck, and the Mm -hmm. city of Bismarck complained because it was going to be upriver from them, and should Mm -hmm. it leak, it was going to um, affect their water supply. So they said, well, okay, we won't run it upriver of Bismarck, We'll run it right through, you know, standing
0: rocks, through tribes, and central land. Yep. They won't care yeah. what well, we get to it. Right. Yeah, and us trying to organize against this pipeline, we have learned a ton from what the folks up at DAPL are doing, or no Dapple. So, you know, like, it wasn't as successful as I think anybody would have wanted it to be, but that really showed us that there was a point to putting up a fight, I think, before that was going on. We knew the pipeline plans were here, and everybody was just kind of like, "Okay, I guess that's yeah. happening." And uh, thanks to that, that was really kind of when folks down here stood up and noticed that uh, <laughs> sometimes you can take action on these things.
1: Oh yeah, it it really does. You see, it really does take a community and, and, a, and a community of allies to really fight against these these types of projects. And it's always amazing to me that there's generally always some way to do this in a little more sustainable and earth friendly fashion. Mm-hmm. But that that also costs a little more money and people just don't want to spend the money to do what's right. Which right. is sad, you
0: know? Yeah, well Very re- sad. <laughs> Yeah. And the really rough thing with this one is if you do the financials it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the state of North Carolina. It makes a ton of sense for the folks who invested in gas wells up in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> they've tapped out the cheapest wells to drill, and the wells run out pretty quickly, so they have to keep drilling new ones, and it gets more and more expensive because they already tapped the cheap spots. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the cost of the gas that comes out is going to go up, so they need a cheap way to move it, and that's what's going on here. This is for the people who invested in the wells. It is not for the people in North Carolina. Like it's, They're already raising rates yeah. because of the costs, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and we're seeing that more and more because they're, they also, I think a lot of them are seeing that that people are are not going to, um, how shall I say this, put up with this much longer, and it's it's kind of corollary to the poor people who are trying to surge the border to get over here before the asylum laws change. They're trying to get all this infrastructure put in before the people finally... uh, say
0: enough and put a halt to it yeah there's there's definitely kind of an air of frenzy about this one like you you can just kind of smell the desperation Um, none none of the permits they're filing are how they're supposed to be done you know they're not doing their basic legwork you can can tell that it's rushed which is interesting
1: yeah oh yeah isn't
0: that isn't that wild isn't it yeah so now it's tied up in court and we'll see if it ever gives out Um, because that's what happens when you don't meet your permits um, great times.
1: Oh, yeah. Anyone that doesn't get a building permit knows that feeling. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> We've all yeah. been there. So uh, any yeah. agriculture stuff that we should talk about?
1: I was going to say, we should not agriculture. In fact, here's something really interesting. I was just down at the Hula River Indian community yesterday doing yeah. some interviews with their GIS people. Mm-hmm. Um, tribes of course are under the same challenges as everybody else they they need to know where their infrastructure is they need to know where the floodplains are and the Hill River Indian community of course is a very interesting place because they are the descendants of the Huhugam Mm -hmm. the people who built the the famed Phoenix Canal System Mm -hmm. They, they built a series of canals to to um, create one of the, the continent's greatest agricultural areas way before the Europeans showed up.
0: Right.
1: They harnessed they, they the Gila River and the Salt River. Um, and, and, of course, they, you know, even even up until the late 1800s, they were one of the richest tribes in the United States because they were one of the, the principal contractees to supply meat and wheat to the U.S. Army. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they are they are are pre- pretty pretty, you know, darn good agriculturalists. Right. And one of the one of the stories that that, that I learned was that you know, the GIS department obviously is tasked with doing all the surveying, you know, where the water lines are, where the floodplains are, um, mapping out the watersheds. And a few years ago, they were approached by the Gila River farm, which is the Gila River farm is a tribally owned agricultural entity, and they were going to restart a lot of their agriculture up because for years and years, their water supply had been cut off by several dams. And of course, the usual thing is the government didn't honor its promise to make sure the tribe still got its fair share of river water. Right. So they got their water back, and one of the things they wanted to do was restart up their their agriculture on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So they tasked the department with going and doing all the surveys. Let's let's put the canals back in, but let's let's see if we can improve on our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So they used all their GPS, their satellite data, their ground surveying. You know, they they spent a lot of money and a lot of time surveying exactly where to put the new canals in, only yeah. to find that the canals that their ancestors built were already sited in the right place.
0: <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: so it's like, well, you know, maybe we should listen to our ancestors a little more.
0: Maybe they do. Um,
1: yeah. so, so one of the cool things about tribal agriculture is that they're all looking at ways to do it in a sustainable manner to make mm-hmm. sure that that they don't have the, the salt buildup, which doomed the last, the last big agricultural period here in the southwest. You know, our soils have a lot of minerals, and mm-hmm. if you don't, don't manage them properly, the, the salts build up really, really fast around here. Yeah. So, so they're really engaged in, in how, how to use water and in a manner that's really wide to only use enough water to grow their crops and not so much that they're going to build up the selenium salts and other poisonous salts. Yeah. They're also doing a lot um, a lot in the way of, of the, the irrigation methods. You know, instead of using, using the sprayer irrigation, they're doing a lot more drip irrigation. And you'll see this a lot not just with tribal agriculture but with agriculture throughout the southwest. Yes. Yeah. That they're they're really being a lot more careful in in using the appropriate amount of water and how they're applying that water. Which of course is really a, a good thing considering mm-hmm. as California, despite having a couple of good water years, is still considered in a drought.
0: Right. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, that's super cool.
1: That's some of the things that we're doing here.
0: Yeah. That's super neat. Well, and, (laughs) um, something I recently found out and is probably also probably not well known to the general public is about half the farmers in Arizona are native, you know, so there's, there's a really long indigenous farming tradition. It's funny because a lot of, you know, folks of the settler persuasion are kind of thinking like, well, you know, indigenous peoples didn't really do the farming. That was our thing. And that's not, if you actually look at the history, what was going on, um, And as a matter of fact, like, so a lot of my ancestors were Warren, And so they came out and they started irrigating. And they're very proud of themselves for making the desert bloom and everything. But a lot of their irrigation channels were just, like, um, renovated, like, old irrigation channels from indigenous peoples who'd already built them. Oh, yeah.
1: Especially here in the Phoenix area where I live. You're exactly right. They literally dug up the old Hibugam canals and relined them and started running water through them. Right. And we're still using them today. Right. And these canals were built around the time of Christ. Right. We're looking at a system that's about 2,000 years old, and it's still viable, and it's still being used. Right. One of, I, I like to call it one of the great engineering feats of the ancient world that nobody knows about.
0: Right, yeah, it's like if all, all these old Roman roads and aqueducts are still around and some of them are still being used and nobody talked about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, so, but
1: of course, the, you know, the downfall of snails is that, is that we do have a lot of, of aspiration, you know, it does lose a certain amount of evaporation into the air, yeah. and it also kind of gives you a false sense of security mm-hmm. that, the canals are still there. They've been there for thousands of years. We're always going to have water. But in reality, the Southwest is definitely growing hotter and drier. And so people are, are, who used to think, well, the water will always be here, are slowly but surely thinking, well, maybe someday there won't be so much water coming through those canals. Maybe we should start thinking about using it a little more wisely, um, or banking it. Like, Gila River, again, I did a story on how they've been working with the city of Phoenix and the, um... Believe it or not, the Walton Foundation, yes, the founders of Walmart are also also pouring millions and millions of dollars into doing a lot of protection efforts along the Colorado River. Hmm. And part of the settlement which restored a lot of Gila River's water, you know, senior water rights, mm-hmm. um, entitled them to about forty about forty percent between themselves and some of the other tribes with water rights settlements. Hmm. Of Arizona's Colorado River allocation, so hmm. they have a big stake in making sure that the Colorado stays healthy enough to continue supplying them with the water that they need to rebuild their farms. Hmm. So, so they've partnered with the Walton Foundation, the City of Phoenix, and a couple of other local entities to do water banking. Um, one of the big, big things that people don't understand about Arizona. Is we have a lot of groundwater here. Yeah. We have lots and lots of aquifers in various stages of potability. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them up north are pretty heavily salted, and so they have to do a lot of treatment before they can they can use them. But a lot of the aquifers here in central and southern Arizona produce really good, pure, drinkable water. Mm-hmm. So what Gila River is doing is they're taking part of the Colorado River allocation. And they're they're percolating it back down into the aquifers. So when there's at dire times of need and if, if their Colorado River allocation gets cut drastically, mm-hmm. then they'll still have at least enough water to to maintain their community.
0: Okay. So it's kind of like evening out like even if um, if you have a certain allocation but you can't use it all, let's let's kind of bank some of that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And then and then because they're partnering with the City of Phoenix, that's helping assure the City of Phoenix's water supply. So even if I don't have water to irrigate my lawn, because yes, those canals also provide what we call flood irrigation here in, in residential areas, mm-hmm. at least we'll be able to have enough water to keep the big trees watered. Which mm-hmm. to me is the big important thing. Mm-hmm. Um because it keeps my, my house cool, it keeps the ambient temperature down, the trees aspirate, of course, you know, they're, they're sucking up carbon and they're producing oxygen, mm-hmm. and they're providing habitat for a lot of our cute little desert wildlife around <laughs> here.
0: Yeah, yeah, and grass, you know, if you do have to cut off water to the grass, it does grow back fairly quickly as plants go And yeah. trees. You just can't really replace those.
1: That's right. I don't really care about the grass. In fact, our backyard has very little grass because we've got we've got food growing back there, and we've got ground cover to keep to keep the the ground moist. So when we, when we plant our berries and our artichokes and stuff, they have enough moisture to last between between the flood irrigation. And of course, the other good thing about flood irrigation is is what doesn't get used goes percolates into the aquifers. So. So yeah, so we're we're doing our own little sustainable agriculture experiment here at our
0: house. Yeah, that's red. Well, and um, so somebody mentioned, so I was kind of checking up on the agriculture and like indigenous farming scene in Arizona. So there's this whole spectrum, just like everybody else. Like you've got people doing it on really small scale, and you have um, like mm-hmm. really big professional operations. Um, oh, could you like kind of provide any insight into like who's doing what, how that kind of breaks down?
1: Oh, yeah, I was just gonna I was just <laughs> that just reminds me. One of the biggest indigenous farmers around is an operation called Ramona Farms mm-hmm. and it's named after the owner, a lady by the name of Ramona mm. who who resuscitated basically some stored tepary beans that her father had stuck away. Yeah. Now tepary beans are uh, they're a being indigenous to the southwest. In that that they're adapted to thrive here in the desert, mm-hmm. they're a very are a really great source of nutrition, um, and they're also easy to grow mm-hmm. once you get the hang of it. If you don't, if there is a knack to growing them, mm-hmm. but once once you get their conditions right and you and you you know exactly how to do it, they're they're really not that hard to grow. But she's reviving the food source as well as a lot of the gourds that people used to used to eat, you know, the the squashes and not so much corn. We don't have much corn here in, in central Arizona. In northern Arizona, there's a lot of corn ground. Down here, it's the squashes, the tepary beans, the mesquite beans, and a lot of those other foods that sustain people for millennia down here. And they can be grown, like I said, with not a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And they, they provide very high nutritional value. And they also don't have the fats and sugars and other things that are contributing to the, the obesity epidemic in Indian country. If you eat those types of foods and you stay away from the processed foods, like fry bread yeah. um, and those types of things, you can lose weight, you can reduce your blood sugars, you can reduce your, your blood pressure, and with some good exercise, you can lose weight. Yeah, and peppery beans are actually pretty tasty beans. So,
0: so how do you how do you prepare peppery beans?
1: Just like any other bean, yeah. <laughs> you soak them and then you cook them. Right. And the, and the, and another good thing about peppery beans is that is that they are not a gassy bean. Oh, that's handy. <laughs> yeah, yes, that is a good thing. Yeah. So she's doing it on a commercial level. Now down south, another awesome group, the ghana Otham or the desert people, have some smaller farms. The Don um, autham um, community action has some smaller farms that are mainly mainly providing people down in that reservation with similar foodstuffs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they, they only sell a little bit of what they produce. It's mostly for the community. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ramona Farms, is, is just growing by leaps and bounds. And she sell, she wholesales, she sells bags of beans. You can go to these gourmet supermarkets and buy them. You can go down to Sapoton and buy them. And that, to me, is one of the most exciting things happening in Indian country is the return of these indigenous foods and being grown on a commercial scale to where they're easily accessible by, by the people who once relied solely on
0: them for, for their food supply. Right. Yeah, that's so great. It seems like a lot of folks kind of like trying to quote unquote, restore traditional foods in like the the settler sphere are very much doing it to like make a niche. And yeah. um, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on accessibility there. And you know, <laughs> as someone from a yeah. working class background, I don't like that. Um, so yeah. that that's fantastic that that's a little bit more focus over there. Yeah.
1: Well, and then there's another group too down in Tucson called Native Seed Search, Mm -hmm. and they are basically a seed bank of indigenous and heirloom varieties. You know, one one of the big, the big scary things about our our agribusiness industrial complex is that the, the genus, the, the species of corn and soybeans and tomatoes and apples is shrinking. That genetic complement is shrinking and these strains are, are produced, you know, to make shiny big apples and big ears of corn, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily produced to resist diseases and blights. Mm-hmm. And it would really only takes one big blight to wipe out our corn crop. Right. And that's kind of scary. So these these seed banks, like Native Seed Search and others like them, who are preserving the indigenous and heirloom varieties, could be the future of our agriculture. Because if if ninety percent of our corn crop crop is gone, they'll have something to where at least you can grow corn in your backyard and produce corn that may not be as pretty or or you know big but it's resistant to blight, it's resistant to the local nasty in your ecology. Right.
0: And they can actually be pretty tasty. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of the cool thing about actually having a living seed bank. Like, we have a lot of seed banks where you, you kind of keep things in drawers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's also good to just use them, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they distribute them all the time. In fact, they, they give them away to, for free and Native people. And then they they sell them at, at cost to non Indians. Mm-hmm. So they're available to anybody and they're really reasonably priced. And the more of us who are who are growing these heirloom and indigenous varieties in our backyards are actually hoping to preserve our our world's food supply, you know, just in case something happens.
0: Yeah. That's yeah we sure
1: don't want corn to go to whey. I believe it's a chestnut that went away.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah
1: so so that one's pretty cool too oh and then of course we have cotton yes you know, with the, the very expensive pima cotton mm-hmm. well that was originated here in the southwest right. the, the hardy varieties of corn you know the various the blue corn is still being grown up in Hopi in, in northern Arizona mm-hmm. and that too I think a lot of people could be could be looking to the Hopis for for even more instruction on how to grow successfully in a very, very dry climate. Because those guys are growing corn with virtually no rainfall except for a couple of months in the summertime. Yeah, They're, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not only is there corn... You know, genetically adapted for that dry climate, but the techniques that they use are really interesting mm-hmm. how they manage to get the corn to germinate and how they dig the holes just right to create the air pockets so that there, there's a little bit of condensation which which nourishes the seed I mean, they're, they're just doing all sorts of cold stuff up
0: there Yeah, there was something I, I was saying once upon a time about like, they're kind of you know, you're farming corn but you're also kind of farming vapor, you know, like when you have a little bit of yeah. dew, you know you got to catch yeah. it. Yeah. So.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, we have the the introduced crops around here: the pecans, mm-hmm. the oranges. You know, those are being grown in in tribal farms. You know, the introduced cattle, and there's a lot of cattle ranching, particularly in northern Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um. Actually, Fort McDowell has a small herd of of cattle. Mm -hmm. almost the entire
0: reservation is open range so you have to be
1: careful driving around there yeah okay hit somebody's
0: cow (laughs) right yeah let's say um I think Florida was the last entire state we used to live in Florida that was still open range so like there's still folks living there today who like learned how to drive when it was an open range state and they were like it was terrible (laughs) but yeah just gotta be careful
1: oh yeah absolutely so um yeah, so we're we're really encouraged by that. And yes, I, I was going to go back to talking about the the agricultural tradition, especially here in the Southwest, is is millennia, literally millennia old. Where I come from in California, they they consider us more what they call pre-agriculturalists because mm-hmm. instead of row crops like what they have here, mm-hmm. we were maintaining. Um, oak tree grows which you know but we don't plant them in rows like like you would see a a, a normal orchard you know they were just growing in certain areas Um, yeah and we would maintain our abalone beds you know you would maintain the watersheds Mm -hmm. so it didn't look like a farm but it really was engaging in agriculture Hmm. but these guys you know when the when the Spaniards showed up they they saw people out there farming, mm-hmm. and and it was some, it was a familiar sight to them. Mm-hmm. So they engaged with the needy people here a little bit differently than they engage with needy people in other parts of the country.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And then something that I've been a little bit obsessed with is um, I did I worked with one. Um, one native organization that was running a farm, it was Yakima Nation up in Washington. And um, so I was just working with orchards all over the place and they're running an orchard. And it was like the tightest run orchard I'd ever seen. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was like, I think part of it is because like the the family farming paradigm, like um, we really treat it like it's the ultimate Um, But you really do have a limited number of people and a limited amount of human capital to kind of put into the operation. And, you know, a a nation or tribal scale enterprise doesn't really have that. You have a lot more people, you can collaborate um, and you can kind of see that in the results. Like when you have a, a small number of people, you just have a limited amount of bandwidth and you're limited in what you can do. And it's it's really interesting to me that, like, settler culture has really promoted this way of farming as being, like, the ultimate sustainable thing, and I don't think it is. I think anything worth doing probably takes a few more people than that, and I wish we would talk about that more.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Me. The, um, because tribal communities tend to be, I hate to use the S word, kind of socialistic <laughs> tendencies where, mm-hmm. where everyone is working... To make sure that everybody has enough to get through the winter, yeah. you, you do see a lot more of that collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. Um, to where the grandmothers would go tell the guys, "Okay, it's time to go go plant your corn now," mm-hmm. and they would all get together and they would all plant their fields. Right. And because you had more people working working with the land and working this these crops. It gets done a lot more efficiently, and it actually contributes to to less of a workload on any one person, mm-hmm. you know, because everyone's taking taking their their everyone is doing their share of the labor, so nobody is overburdened with with having to feed the entire clan, basically.
0: Right. Yeah, there was. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. I was going to say,
1: in fact, there are. There's a lot of tribal communities out here in in the West and in places like California that 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 had so many natural resources that people have to work all year. Mm-hmm. They could work four or five or six months and and put everything aside to get them through the rest of the year. And then they could take the rest of the time to go travel, to go trade with other tribes, mm-hmm. to indulge in things like making baskets or, or doing art or building regalia mm-hmm. or just kind of hanging out. Yeah. So that's a whole different thing than the family farmer today. You know, they're <laughs> out there working six, seven days a week, you know, 11 and a half months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference you know, to me, it's a lot better way for everyone to collaborate and you only have to work five or six months out of the year and spend the rest of the time basically going fishing.
0: Right. Yeah, and there was, I just ran across some history today from some from some folks up in Canada. I think it was the the Cree Nation kind of talking about their experience. So there were some treaties where they were like, all right, you can you can live here as long as you become farmers. You know, they'd traditionally been more mobile. and. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're coming from that background where you do everything together, like as a, as a large group instead of family by family, they were like, okay, we're farming now. Let's go get some equipment because this is around the beginning of mechanized agriculture. They were okay. like, cool, let's go get some equipment and we're going we're gonna to farm with some bigger equipment. And they were really, really good at it. And their white neighbors were like, oh, no. <laughs> we can't have this like they cuz they'd had this whole um, narrative about how like well we need to civilize them and we need to teach them how to farm and then they start doing it and they're really really good at it like pretty much right away and that was that was scary uh, so they they so then they passed another law where they're like okay well no 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 when we said farm you have to do it like You have to do it with hose. You have to do it with, like, hand tools. You can't use a plow. You can't use horses. And you have to be limited to X amount of acreage per family. You're not allowed to share. And I just think that's really interesting because that tells me that deep down, we know homesteading doesn't work. And, uh, you know, that this collaborative approach is really the way to go. But uh, that's just never been a part of our culture that we've been happy to talk about.
1: (laughs) And part of that is because... The, um, the people who who basically took over the country and started running it to suit themselves were trying to bust up tribes. And one mm-hmm. way to bust up tribes was to give every family their 160 acres and a meal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Because they saw how how communities come together and work collaboratively, mm-hmm. and they didn't like that. They wanted everyone to. To be their own little unit, it's kind of like divide and conquer.
0: It really is, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I definitely like a lot of this return to collaborative effort. It's mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's not huge yet, but it's it is growing. You you start to see it more and more where people are engaging in what they call the decolonization process, which is a fancy term for, let's just do it the way our ancestors used to do it. Right. It doesn't mean you give up mechanized farm equipment. It doesn't mean you give up electricity or living in houses. It means that that the way that you do things is more like like our our ancestors did it which was to create prosperity for the entire community or the whole extended family and not just mom dad and 2.5 kids
0: right yeah and it's it's really interesting because when you talk about um you know farming is a larger unit than an immediate family um either one of two things happens either people go like oh no a corporate farm <laughs> or uh you know or they just kind of go like oh well that's hippy dippy nonsense um Whereas in reality, it's it's really worked quite well. It works it works so well that it really threatened a lot of people, you know, and, and their ability to feel superior. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's just really something that we should pay a little bit more attention to. Like this, like I, I understand where people are coming from when they say small is beautiful, but I think to some extent that really helps the people trying to run things to suit themselves because a whole bunch of small people are easy to divide and conquer and they're never going to pose a threat. So I'm just like, right. mm, let's work together, though. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those, that that cooperative method of of really doing anything mm-hmm. really works better for everybody in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and one of the other examples I always like to talk about is there's a there's a big, huge lake in North Dakota um, and it's dammed by this dam called Garrison Dam mm-hmm. and under that lake is, were the old bottom lands of the Upper Missouri River mm-hmm. and that's where the Mandan Hidatsa and the Ricora had settled mm-hmm. you know, they too were once um, they were—they definitely traded. They, they were traders, and they were business people. Mm-hmm. So they they roamed around the northern plains a lot, going from place to place and doing their trading, and and you know going from winter camps to summer camps. And then, of course, it was the same thing. The government said, well, we'll, we'll give you part of this land, You're part of your land back, but you have to be farmers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they all did the same thing. You know, they, they collaborated. They built farms. They were, they were very, very prosperous living down in their bottom lands. Yeah. They were probably one of the few tribes in the 1930s and 40s that didn't rely on the government for anything. Mm -hmm. And all of these big floods had come down through the Missouri River and and drowned out a bunch of cities in the Midwest. And the government said, oh, my gosh, we have to do something about this. And so they built the dam, and they they drowned the bottomlands, and they told the the three tribes, they called the three affiliated Mm tribes, you move up on top, And we'll compensate you, we'll give you money, and we'll give you part of the water. Well, of course, we know what happened. Mm -hmm. They didn't get any money. They didn't get any water. For that matter, neither did any of the other farmers around the reservoir from Garrison Dam get any of that water. Mm -hmm. And it took like 40 or 50 years for a a young um, man from that tribe to become a lawyer and he finally successfully fought for them to, to be, you know, recompensated. Because one of the things that people found out who settled in the northern plains, and you've been there, it's flat. There's mm-hmm. nothing there but grasslands. The wind blows, it's a really nasty place to be. Hey. But when you went down into the bottomlands, the wind died down, mm-hmm. and you could grow things because it was nice, fertile, alluvial soil. And yeah. So of course, the government got rid of the you know best, the best producing land in the northern plains and made people live up on top with no way to make a living. And and yep. if you ever get a chance to read the book Coyote
0: Warrior, you gotta read it because yeah. it's all about that struggle. And they said
1: that this young man, when he was a boy, was walking to school and stepping over the. The passed out bodies of his friends' parents, living in you know, passed out on the street because they had given up hope. Yeah, they had no way to make a living anymore. Yeah, but yeah, going back to the going back to the old ways is always better. Yeah. So you have my soapbox now.
0: (laughs) No, that's good. I mean, this is why we call people for podcasts. Give me your soapbox.
1: Yeah, so I'm very very happy to see that indigenous farmers are are. You're thinking more and more about how they're doing what they do and why it's a good idea to figure out how the ancestors did things. And that way you can use today's technology. They're really combining the best of both worlds. They're combining the, the environmentally friendly way, growing food and doing agriculture with you know a lot of the really cool new technology that we have today. You know, the GPS, the GIS, the, the increased, increasing accuracy of weather forecasts, the ways that, that people are learning to make do with less and less water and use the water they have a lot more efficiently to grow crops that are, that are su- suitable for the environment in which they are mm-hmm. and trying to move away from... Although I wish I wish to God they move away from almonds in Central Valley, but you know, I don't know if that's ever gonna happen. Until yeah. they're forced to.
0: Well, it's it's our job in the South to just get up and grow pecans already so that uh so that we don't have to in California. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they don't they don't have to grow almonds in California. They could grow it in
0: some place where there's lots of water. Yeah, well yeah, I don't know about almonds kind of need dryness, but a lot of the stuff that people are doing with almonds you can also do with pecans. Um, but, but the the South's agricultural infrastructure is so like in California, you can get a loan to to plant trees, you know, because okay. trees they have to they need time to grow up, and okay. and almonds need less time, pecans need a lot of time. But also the ag land out here is very 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 cheap, like it's a tenth the cost uh, of what it is in California. So you could go and plant pecan groves down here, and people are finally starting to do that. But there was such a long lag because the South has just been row crops, like just cheap bargain basement row crops for so long that there's not the lending infrastructure to do pecans, which is really interesting. Like if you, if you drive through most parts of the South, you'll see a lot of like old pecan groves and they max out at like maybe five acres because it was always like, Oh, we had a good year. Let's buy some pecan seedlings or like, let's plant some pecan trees. Like that's the level that the, the planning was on. Um, so it's just not a very concerted effort to, to grow something that's um, starting to change. But like, I kind of feel like some of California's water problems are on us because we didn't get up and grow any pecans, so.
1: Where I come from in the central coast, there's a county that has no right to the surface water at all. That's all allocated for the west side of the San Joaquin Valley and ultimately Los Angeles. Hmm. Which means that you have to use what little bit of groundwater is there. Yeah, there's just a lot of craziness going on in
0: California. Yeah. When it comes to water. Yeah, well that's that's kind of the the scary thing is as an agriculture person, um, you know, if you go out to California, that's where it's most professionalized. Like that's where the really skilled, you know, like I can run a grove of trees without using a lot of pesticides people are. And mm-hmm. a lot of that developed in the first place because it's dry, so your pest pressure starts out pretty low. But we've gotten good enough at it that we can replicate that a lot further east now as well. Um, mm-hmm. But we just haven't really developed a human capital to put that to use out here mm-hmm. because California is yeah. producing so much crop that there's just not a market. Um, yeah. So it would be really great if we could take some of that professionalism and that skill and just, you know, as farmland is, is going, you know, getting converted to other uses out there, um, or as we need mm-hmm. to retire it for water, um, we could be doing that out here in the South. The South is huge. The South has plenty of water. It's already hot and sticky, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we, we have the tools to manage stuff under humid conditions now a lot better than we used to. But we're just kind mm-hmm. of not doing it because California is, like, you know, kind of currently occupying that spot. But that's, that's the thing I would like to, to get going a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd like to see a lot more of that, too. And, and if anybody's doing a reporting on that, I'd love to love
0: to either write it or read it. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and then something else we should be looking at doing is if you look at the south from the air, like, half of it is just a big timber pine plantation. Um, so there's, I think there used to be a lot of native hardwood forests here, like oak, um, a lot of chestnut and we're getting chestnut varieties that are resistant to blight now so it's like we could probably do some native forest restoration like get some of those food groves going back on um I, there's got to be somebody out here working on it it's a very big region but i don't know who they would be so that's something i got to look out for mm-hmm. anyway. cool. yeah yeah
1: that would be fun
0: yeah if anybody knows call me <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me
0: too. Thank you so much, Deb. There's so much great information here. And just like any time you're going a mile a minute, I want to tie off a couple loose threads before we close this down. If you know U.S. agricultural history, you might have heard the part where we were talking about how the Cree nation in Canada was forced to farm on 160 acres in a mule like it was a bad thing, when a lot of black farmers in the South around the same time were dying for 40 acres and mule. That's because the Cree reserves where this was happening were up in Northern Canada prairies, where the growing season is maybe 12, maybe 16 weeks long. And in a lot of the South, you can grow something year round. So 40 and 160 acres in those places were both just enough to barely survive on at that time. And even in the South, 40 acres and a mule still isn't a lot. The legal practice of ordering Native people to divide their own lands into individual family homesteads instead of just running one big community-sized farm, which was the normal way for them to do it, was called severalty. And it didn't just happen in Canada. The U.S. did this as well. The really good example that I'm familiar with at this time is after forcing several tribes to relocate to Oklahoma, a lot of them made extra cash by leasing land to cattle ranchers. They'd also basically charge lease fees or almost like a toll in exchange for providing fresh green grass for cattle drives along the cattle drive routes. These are the trails where ranchers would move their herds uh, from their main grounds in Texas to Kansas. You know They have to go across Oklahoma to get to the railroad depot towns in Kansas like Abilene. Eventually, the U.S. government caught wind that tribes were doing okay for themselves uh, through consensual trade with ranchers and put a stop to it by dividing up these lands into single-family homesteads. This made it nearly impossible to make a coherent trail for their herds. And romance aside, the cowboys who were managing these herds' traffic and transit were overworked, underpaid farm laborers whose jobs just depended on keeping a railroad schedule. This collision of long-distance colonial businesses like ranching and railroads and colonial government practices like forcing Native people to run their lands in a way that didn't make sense for anybody made for big problems. It led to confusion, delays, and hungry, thirsty, sick herds, and these several tea policies made a big impact on ranching culture. This period helped solidify the cowboys versus Indians conflict that now, looking back, look inevitable and even, like, traditional. If you think that's interesting, there's a whole episode coming up later with Josh Specht, author of Red Meat Republic, on how the beef industry developed and what it had to do with big continent-scale land management decisions. And it ties in so much with what Deb's been telling us today. I'm so excited. Again, this was an interview with Deborah Kroll, journalist with the Holone Free Press at HoloneIndian.com. And she's on Twitter at Deb Kroll. I'll give you guys links in the notes. Check her out. And thanks so much for listening.